welcome into another episode of the Growing Faith Podcast. My name is Rick McClatchy. I am a staff pastor at the Rocky Butte campus of Manor House in Portland, Oregon. And here at the Growing Faith Podcast, our heart is really quite simply just to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. We focus primarily on two main areas, that being small groups and pastoral care. And so we are in the middle of a conversation with the professor, the professor, Lanny Hubbard. It's such an honor to have him here on the program. And last week we started a conversation about the contextualizing journey, how to learn what did it mean in the town of the author and what does it mean today in your town and the journey between those two points. So we're going to just jump right into where we left off last week as Lanny started to talk about the six interrogatives of the English language and how we can use that simple tool to help us more clearly understand the original intent, the original meaning of the text, and then be able to bring it across all of the gap between the original author and ourselves and have a great application for how we can uh, put it into practice today. So join me as we jump on in with Lanny Hubbard. And I can construct now some questions for each of these that as I'm reading through a section in the Bible, I just ask myself these questions, you know, and I'll, let me go through them real quick. And that is the first one. Who? The text. Very if I'm reading a text in the Bible, who wrote it? Which means I need to go back and I need to find out who is the author. Uh, what's his background? Uh, does he come from a wealthy family? Was he uh, aristocracy like Isaiah was and so forth? Did he come from a family that was liturgical and priests like Ezekiel and like Jeremiah were? Was he a shepherd from the field like Amos was? Was he a tax gatherer like Levi? Was he a medical doctor like Luke? Who were these guys? We see their names, but sometimes we disassociate that from the real people, their education, their training, their background. And so I've got to go back and I've got to ask some big questions of these guys. Who were they? As much as we know, their background, what was their life? Were, did they come from a poor caste? Did they come from a wealthy caste? Now, uh, their occupational background, were they a fisherman like Peter and John and so forth? Or what were they? You know, because that's all, all going to affect the way they see life, you know, and the way they approach it. Uh, so that's an important question. And then there's some books that will help me to get into the authors of the Bible and who wrote them. The next one would be uh, what was written. What was written. And that, what I mean by that is what is the actual content? When I look at this book, what does it include? Is it just straight words? Is it just dialogue? Is it just teaching? Or does this book include dreams and visions and imagery? Uh, does it include poetry? Uh, a third of the Bible is written in poetry. And yet poetry reads differently than narrative and prose. And so I've got to ask myself, what is actually here? What kind of literature do I have that is there? And I'll give you an example of this. We take the four Gospels, for instance. And for many people, they think the four Gospels are just the same story about the same guy, but they're not. They're extremely different. And yes, they're all talking about Jesus, but when you go through the content of each of the Gospels, one Gospel will include certain things because they're 
important to that writer, the next one won't include some of those because they weren't important to the message he was trying to communicate. And to find those things that were unique in some of the different Gospels. Um, for instance, you go into the parables. Uh, in Matthew and Luke, for instance, Matthew and Luke include a large number of parables. So when Jesus teaches, he's going to use huge amounts of parables. That's his primary teaching tool. You go into Gospel of John, there's none. Maybe two. If you include, I'm the vine and I'm the good shepherd, but a lot of guys don't say that those are parables. They're just basically Jesus taking identity in these. But here you've got Luke who has 30 some odd parables and you've got John who has none. Here you've got Mark who has Jesus doing 11 miracles in chapter one by the time you get through. And then you've got the gospel of John where he does seven in the whole book. Uh, then you've got Matthew, his first miracle is the healing of a leper when he comes off the Sermon on the Mountain. You go to John and it's turning water into wine at the wedding of Canaan. They're different. And they're different because the authors, each of the authors, presented material that was important to them, important to the message that they were trying to communicate. So I've got to say, what did they include or what didn't they include? You know, that's, that speaks a whole lot sometimes, you know, when you look at them and say, okay, John just didn't think that these were important at all. And so we have to go back and we have to look at examples of the things that they include in there. Uh, how was it written? How was it written? Now that has to do with the structure of the book. Um, some of the books were laid out very, very clearly and they have very clear dividing lines in it. For instance, uh, the book of Haggai in the Old Testament is made up of four messages. Each message is dated to the day and the month of the year. And so at the beginning of each of the messages, it will say on the first day of the second month, the third year of so-and-so's life, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, and he does this. And so his whole book, how it's put together, is a series of dated messages. The book of Ezekiel is put together. It's a series of 13 dated messages that are there. Uh, the book of Daniel is made up of when you read the book of Daniel, the beginning of the chapters, it says in the third year of Belshazzar, the fifth year of Belshazzar, the first year of Belshazzar, you know, the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. The interesting thing is this. They don't follow chronological sequence. They tell you when they were given, but he reshuffles the deck because the end result is not based on the chronology. It's based on the message that's being communicated. So how is it done in little pieces? Sometimes have repeated ideas. Uh, most people will not realize that the book of Genesis is written, it's actually about 11 different stories. Each of the stories begins with a Hebrew word, and the word is toaleth, that means the generations of. And so you have 11 different stories, the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generation, and you begin to go down through the stories of these people. And so much so that a lot of your commentators were saying, this one word, this repeated word, is, is like a table of contents. It tells us when the author is shifting in the, the historical account that he gives. And that reported term is, is very, very crucial. Uh, we have uh, historical landmarks. Oh, uh, the Gospel of John, for instance. The Gospel of John focuses on the Jewish festivals. It, notice how many times it will say when Jesus did something. It was Passover, or it was the great day of the feast the last day of the feast, or it was the Feast of Dedication, it was Feast of Winter, John used events that had historical dates during a certain time of year, and he used those as landmarks. It says, now, 
let me tell you the story of Jesus, and it happened during this feast. This story happened during this feast. And he uses this as a structure to guide his, his writers as they go down through there. Uh, Amos, when he begins his book, he says, the, the word of the Lord given to Amos the prophet two years before the earthquake. Why in the world does he write that? Because that earthquake was significant. He throws a historical marker in there. And that so that in years to come, any reader that goes back, he can pinpoint exactly where it is because they would all know that earthquake. And so they could put it back and they could put it in its historical context. Now, Luke, Luke gives us a little clue in his gospel. And that is when he's writing to Theophilus, he said, I'm going to put these things in order. And so he comes right out and tells you, I am putting them in a simple, it's eyewitness account, an orderly presentation of all the things that you've been saying. So for Luke, the chronological order was important. And so that's why he goes back and guess where he starts? The birth of John the Baptist, who was born six months before Jesus was, then the birth of Jesus, the childhood raising, and he just follows their lives chronologically until you get to the ascension of Christ going back to heaven. Because there's something in the chronology, the order, that for Luke was really, really important. And then we've got one, and then everybody still scratches their head with this one, and it's the book of Psalms. It's the, the biggest book there is. Psalms demonstrates that it had been edited. The final copy that we have today is not the way it was written. David did not sit down one day and start with Psalms 1 and just go and Psalms 2. We know this because other authors will have Psalms intermittently put in. And we all, if you look at your Bible, the book of Psalms, they're divided into five books. And it will say this right in your Bible. It's a very old demarcation, and it's a sign of editing. Uh, we can tell this because at the end of Psalm 72, it says, thus ends the prayers of David. And yet there's Psalms of David that continue on after Psalms 22, which meant what? Psalm 72 was an original ending of a collection, but there were others that were then added on later. The book was edited. It shows signs of it. So why five books? Why five groups? What's the significance of that? That's all how it was put together. And so these are the things we have to realize because sometimes it's the way it's organized is part of the message itself. We go back to it. Why was it written? This is very important. Uh, the books of the Bible are, are written for different reasons. And I'll give you here a phrase and I give it to your listeners that are there. It's called task theology. Task theology is simply a little phrase that means that when the people in the Bible wrote the material that they did, the authors under the inspiration of God, they were writing for different purposes, different jobs. Um, we can go through and we can find this. Sometimes different writers were writing to correct problems that were there. And so the material that's going to be given is going to address misunderstandings and it's going to bring in a correct a way to look at these because people have been thinking incorrectly. And so you're going to find in some of the New Testament epistles that the author's coming in and says, I know that this is what you think, but you know, let's go back and restate it. Uh, the book of Ezekiel says to his people, uh, there's a proverb you guys are using. And then he mentions about three or four of these that the people of Judah were using says, these are little sayings. Seemingly, they explain how I act, but they're really totally wrong. They're ones you've just made up. 
And so he will address these proverbs and says, you'll no longer use this because it's not true. Let me correct your misunderstanding at this point. And so sometimes an author has to do that. Sometimes he needs to just inform, pass on information, because his original readers now was maybe missing some facts. So it was just a matter of filling in some of the blanks. At other times, it was to rebuke people. Uh, their conduct and their attitude was just wrong. And so the author's going to get very, very strong. Uh, if you ever take the time to read through like the book of Philippians and the book of Galatians, uh, they're totally different. I mean, the book of Philippians, I love you. I think about you always. I, I, I you know, you guys are my greatest friends. And you go to the book of Galatians and said, I'm worried about you guys. I think I wasted my time with you. I think that you have, somebody's bewitched you, you know. And you can tell that, that Paul's feelings towards his audience, even though he loved them, he was, he was frustrated with them at that point. And he's going to rebuke them because they have given way to uh, not the real gospel. They've given way to some stuff that's caused them to think wrongly at that point. So he has to stop them in their tracks. For other times, in authors, their whole book is meant to encourage. Uh, we looked at the book of Hebrews, for instance, and it's doctrinally, it's one of the more difficult books we have because it has those difficult passages on what happens to somebody who falls away after they come to the knowledge of truth. And great battles of eternal security are found in, in Hebrews 6 and 10. But when he concludes the books, he says, these short words of exhortation, encouragement that I've given you, the whole book, even though he's had to plow through some deep theological problems, the whole book was meant to strengthen and encourage people. That's the tone of the author at this point. And then some other writers will just try to bring people to a, a place of thinking or a place of decision. Uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 20 ends with these words, these things I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing you might have eternal life. He says, that's the reason I wrote my book, is to bring you to a place of faith. And so some of the authors will do that. That's their purpose. That's their intent. And so that big why question goes back, and it's, it's very, very crucial. Discovering the, the purpose of it, the author's intent, may be a, a little bit of a challenge because not all the biblical writers will come right out and tell you, I'm, I'm doing it for this reason. They, they won't come right out and give you the purpose. I mean, I just gave you John 20. He waits till the end of the book to give you the purpose of the book. <laughs> he doesn't right. give you the prophecy. He waits till the last part. But let me give you some keys. These are some important little keys to discover the author's intent. Number one, there's a stated purpose. Uh, when you go to certain books, the author at the very beginning will state, this is why I'm writing. I mentioned Luke a little earlier, and Luke was writing so that he could give a well-researched and well laid out uh, group of information to Theophilus so that Theophilus would be certain about the things that he had heard. He does the same thing with the book of Acts as he introduces that book too. And so the author will sometimes state, this, this is what I'm gonna do for you. You'll find at other times, the author will give his purpose through repeated words. Uh, if a key word or a phrase captures the main leading idea in the book, the author will make it very clear by repeating that same phrase over and over and over again. And every time the reader hears it, he's going to stop and say, oh, he's bringing that up again. And that's the way that the ancient writers would do that. You can go through the, the book of Hebrews, and one of the key words in Hebrews is better. 
a better covenant made out, better promises, better sacrifices, a better sanctuary, a better priesthood. And that tells you what? The author of Hebrews is trying to say Jesus is better than what the Hebrew Christians had in their old Jewish practices. And so the word, the repeated word, guides them as to what its intended is. Uh, the sequence of events, the sequence of events. Matthew, the very first thing he puts in his book is a genealogy. Why? Because he needs that for the rest of his book. Now, Luke, when he starts his book, he, does, he saves the genealogy for chapter 3. But Matthew puts it right there in verse 1 of chapter 1. He needs that genealogy there because it's going to make a statement that he's going to build on through the remaining chapters that are going to be there. Uh, Luke, though, he's going to come, and what's he going to do? He wants to tell you about baby Jesus. He wants to tell you about the miracle birth of John the Baptist. The miracle birth of show you the same angel that went to Elizabeth is the same angel that went to Mary. These two ladies are going to bring forth two children. These two children are going to be led by the Spirit, and they're going to pave the way for the whole new kingdom to come through. That story now there, chapter 1, and you get a clue because by the end of chapter 1 of Luke, you've got four people that have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And Luke is trying to make a point. This whole kingdom thing I'm about to tell you cannot happen without the work of the Holy Spirit, whether it's in Jesus' life or it's the life of other people and so forth. And we see the same thing in the book of Acts. And so where they go, the repeated words, what they put first and so forth. Um, the beginning. Now, whenever you read a book, and especially when you get into the New Testament books, Whenever you read the beginning of a book, pay close attention to the first five verses of the book, because oftentimes, the biblical writers, the apostles in the New Testament, once they get through their personal introduction, I, Paul, the apostle of the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, and so forth, they get through that introduction. In the next couple of verses, oftentimes, they will lay out the keys to the entire book. It's, as I tell the students, it's like the table of contents that's at the front of most books you read. You can go to that page, the table of contents, you can read down through it very quickly, and you've got the layout of the entire book. And a lot of the New Testament epistles are written the same way. Within the first five verses, you've got the main themes that the author is going to pick up through the rest of the book. He's hit you with it, and then he comes back and says, now, let's take them one at a time. Let's start developing and go through classic example of this is, is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It reads with a series of seven phrases, and these phrases describe now the person and the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. He's the creator of all things, the heir of all things, you know, and it talks about him being a radiant expression of the Father, and it goes down to, and guess what? That is the whole book of Hebrews. In three verses, he has all the major points that he's going to talk about, about Jesus' life, his relationship, and he condenses to the three verses. Now, what that probably was, and history tells us, those three verses were probably a hymn that was sung by the early church. Because, again, they didn't have books. They were illiterate. How did they learn their theology? They put it to music. And so they would take their Christology, and they would make it phrases in a little hymn about Jesus Christ. And that's how they remember all the things that Jesus was to them. And so... The author of Hebrews just took that chorus, used it, and says, now, what I'm going to do for the rest of the book is I'm going to build on that little chorus. Let me tell you about this, Jesus. And you'll find different guys that will do that. And so look for those. Uh, when was it written? Uh, when a book? This is another one of our questions. When was it written? Uh, I won't go into depth on this, but take, for instance, the prophets of the Old Testament. They represent a huge section of the Old Testament. 
ask yourself a simple question. Was this prophet, did he write before the Babylonian captivity? Did he write during the Babylonian captivity? Or did he write after the Babylonian captivity? And you'll find as you go down through history, you'll have your pre-exilic, that's the exile of 70 years in Babylon, pre-exilic prophets, exilic prophets, post-exilic prophets. And that's how a lot of the prophets are divided up. Are they either looking forward to the coming judgment, are they in the judgment, or do they come out of the judgment and they're trying to reconstruct when they wrote now? Really lends a lot of light to the kind of material that's going to be included in, in those books. Where was it written? Where was a book of the Bible written? Uh, what was the setting? Where was the author? Well, when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, he was in the wilderness. He wasn't sitting in a palace. He was following two million people through the wilderness and so forth. And that's where he wrote that, living in the middle of the grumbling and the complaining and the manna and the, you know, all the plagues and everything. He was living in the middle of that. Um, when you look at some other books, like, uh, for instance, uh, you look at Paul's epistles, he wrote 13 books. You look at his epistles, four of them he wrote from jail. And he tells you that. Yeah, while you read the epistles, he says, I am in change right now. Well, the books that Paul wrote while he was in jail are different than the books he wrote when he was on the road, traveling around, free and everything else. Now he's in jail, he's under house arrest. And so now he has to pastor churches from a distance because he can't travel there and be with them anymore. And so he writes the famous prison epistles that we find in the New Testament. Where was the author? Because I know this, if you read through those four epistles, notice how many times Paul will use his own personal chains as a backdrop. This is his situation as a backdrop to the message he's trying to communicate. And so knowing this, that situation is very crucial. And then the last one I put in there is who is it written to? What's the audience like at this point? Where are they located? When I read the epistle to James, it says, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He's writing a letter that has a very broad audience. They're not in one city, one location. They're all over the place. And so that tells you right off the bat that James's intended audience is big. It's broad. Whereas with some of Paul's letters, he says to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Philippi, he is writing that to a specific congregation within a specific city, and he's addressing the mindset and the issues that they are going to experience in that town. Are there things we can learn from that in our settings? Absolutely. But if I read Ephesians without understanding life in Ephesus, I'm going to miss a lot of the, the notes, a lot of the insinuations that he's going to make at that point. And so I've got to know where are these people, where are they living out there and so forth. Now, last thing, go down, and that is the gaps. Now, I referred to this. This is the river that's between our town and theirs. And this takes the work, but it's the gaps between us and them, our world and theirs. And I'll just give you a series of related terms, Rick, and then I'll go on. I don't know if we'll ever be able to build on it. But these are just some of the the huge differences between us, the modern readers, and them. The difference between the East and the West. The philosophy, the worldview of the East, the Eastern world and the Western world. Uh, the ancient Orient and then the Mediterranean European world. The way that they approach life, the way they view time, uh, the way that they view society is totally different. And so I can't read as a Westerner a book written in an Eastern culture and understand a lot of it. I've got to understand the difference between the two. 
the difference between agrarian and industrial. Uh, how much of the Bible was written in agrarian culture? And that's why the illustrations come straight off the farm or off the country. They're made about the stars and the heavens or the weather patterns, the thunder and the lightning and the mountains shaking and the deer in the field. Why? Because that's the, that's the world of these farmers that were back there. And they were. Abraham was a farmer. Isaac was a farmer. They were. And that's their world. That's their frame of reference. And sometimes we get the idea in our industrial culture, you know, we don't understand the mindset of, of agrarian people. We tend to look down on them as simpletons, and yet these people could understand the, the seasons and the times better than some of the people in the cities because they had to live with the weather. They had to live with the patterns of nature. So we got to understand the agrarian world and the industrial, the rural world and the urban world. Uh, I tell my kids at college, I said, if you don't believe that this is real, just look at a political map of the United States and look at the red states and the blue states. Look at the difference between industrial states and the agricultural states, the breadbasket, the Midwest, where you've got out there. And guess what? Growing up in a rural setting makes you think differently than growing up in New York City or L.A. And so we've got to get back and we've got to realize that if I'm a, a city boy and I'm reading uh, a book of the Bible that's written in a very, very rural culture, well, I, I need some help at that point. Uh, between the ancient and the modern, between a patriarchal and an egalitarian, there's a huge one right there. Uh, I read so much of the Old Testament and I say, well, it appears as though they're all egalitarian or patriarchal, misogynistic male-oriented people. Well, that's the world that they had. It wasn't because God told them to live this way. It's the world that he had to work with them, and so he did. But it's interesting, and when you go through, and in the middle of a patriarchal culture, you see how God honors women at times in ways that the culture would never honor. Uh, you go into the New Testament, and we take it for granted. We read the book of Luke, and we say, okay, Luke is just like the other Gospels. Well, in Luke, notice all the women that Jesus highlights, and he puts them forward as great heroines of faith. He starts with Elizabeth, the mother of John. He goes to Mary. Then you go to the women in Luke 8 that supported him. You go to Mary Magdalene and so forth, and how Luke gives honor. Guess what? In the middle of a patriarchal culture, Luke is countercultural. I don't under I can read through Luke and say, yeah, he gives some token women. No, we don't understand the significance of Luke in that culture at that time. He was stepping way out. And he was going beyond cultural boundaries. And God was trying to communicate something through that. So I've got to know that if I'm going to benefit from it. So this is it. Uh, um, I think probably we could wrap it up. If you've got some questions, later I can go into some more where books we can go to to actually get some of this material uh, to kind of reconstruct this a little bit and so forth. Yeah, so uh, cool. I. I'm going to put in the show notes some links. I'm going to put a link to that cultural background study Bible. Actually, the if you're into ebooks, the Kindle version of it is available right now for $3.99. So that's oh, a smoking deal for a, for a book like that. Um, sometimes, sometimes these great study Bibles don't translate super well into the ebook thing as far as just being able to get around. But uh, I definitely picked it up because I think that's a great resource to have, you know, for, for four bucks. I mean, can't go wrong. Uh, also going to put some links into um, into the show notes for the uh, the IVP Bible background commentary by Keener, just uh, like and, and Walton. Um, 
just like uh, Lanny mentioned, and also a link to uh, the book that has driven a majority of this conversation, Grasping God's Word, uh, hands-on approach to reading, interpreting, and applying the Word of God. And so that's an incredible resource of a book. And um, also going to show a link uh, to the contextual journey uh, map that Lanny has been making reference to throughout our conversation. And so, man, I think uh, there's just so much that we have talked about. Uh, well, I should say you <laughs> couldn't probably take too much credit. Uh, I'm just the color commentator here, just here for personality. So, <laughs> but um, what a, what a great, uh, what a great thing. I think first and foremost, just to, just to remind people, don't ask what it means to me when you're reading the Bible. Don't ask first and foremost, don't ask, what does it mean to me? Ask, what did it mean to them? I think that's a great starting point to check our American uh, quick and easy Bible reading uh, kind of idea. Like we're too ready to read it through our American filter and then boom, 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 come up with our answers. Uh, I think we need to take probably just a little bit more care. Uh, And then I like how you just went through the interrogatives. What a simple way to remember some of the things that I need to be asking in this process. Who wrote it? What kind of literature is it? How is it written? Why was it written? When was it written? Just, I mean, and and even where was it written in the context of geographical context and what was happening in the government at that time and all that kind of stuff. Just, uh, uh, man, it's so simple and yet begins to open up a great world of details that we can begin to fill in. And then even identifying things like you were talking about their stated purpose, watching out for the first five verses of a book that the the author actually might just tell you what they're writing about. And that uh, the audience that they are writing to, the people they are addressing is actually super important as to why they are communicating the way they are. Because if somebody comes to me and tells me, Uh, Rick, I need you to go and teach um, a lesson of some sort to a room full of, let's say, 55 to 75-year-olds, then it's going to be communicated in a certain way. I'm going to use certain kinds of stories. I'm going to use certain kinds of examples. But then if they come and say, now tomorrow I need you to teach that same lesson to some third graders, or I need you to teach that same lesson to some high schoolers, then, then the whole game changes. Like you can't, like you have to almost go completely back to the drawing board for preparing that message because the audience that you are communicating to is so different. And, uh, and so that's where, um, man, you're just helping. And so, and then in the next episode that we do together, we're going to jump into the topic of, of Bible tools. Like what are some tools available to us to help us begin to do um, this journey And then the episode that we will jump into after that, we will begin to talk about um, some Bible study actual techniques. So uh, we'll talk about, you know, how to study maybe a book or a passage or a word. And just so that people, so that you can begin to understand some of the different avenues that you can actually maybe set yourself some assignments, some tasks. Like I'm going to jump in in this focused way. Because um, when you are, uh, it's always say, uh, you know, you, some people want to just learn from the Bible, quote unquote, organically. You know, they just they want to open up the word and let the word speak to them. And I always think to myself, and I think you as uh, someone with a little bit of a farming kind of background in your in your history can appreciate is that 
I don't know, Lanny. I don't understand it. When I go to Fred Meyer or, you know, any other grocery store, if I go to the organic, gro- you know, the organic vegetable section, um, if organic is just so easy, I would expect it to be way cheaper. But it turns out organic vegetables are pretty expensive. Can you throw some light on why organic vegetables cost more than the regular vegetables? You have to treat your soil a little bit different. <laughs> you have to take care <laughs> of it. Yeah. It's easier just to pump chemicals in it to kill all the bugs rather than to to grow it the way and to make it grow faster than so we can get multiple crops during the year. So all that stuff adds additives to it, you know, rather than just let nature do itself and so forth. Sometimes the things that grow in nature aren't quite as pretty and perfect, but we like the pretty and perfect. And so a lot of your organic stuff may have some blemishes in it, but it doesn't have all the other pesticides in it too. So yeah. And I think, I think that that word organic, you know, if we were even to be like, hey, make your Bible study, uh, the study of the Bible, make it organic in your life in that you make a plan. Uh, because if I'm going to plant a, an organic garden, uh, I'm going to plan what kind of seeds I want to plant. I'm going to decide where I'm going to plant it. I'm going to decide uh, the area and I'm going to prep it and I'm going to make rows and I might even make some signs so I know what's growing where and I'm going to tend it daily to make sure that I'm not getting a bunch of stuff in there. I'm going to make sure that the soil that the seed is going into has been properly prepared and properly laid out. You know, so you just, you begin to dig into this picture of, organic gardening versus or you know along the lines of organic bible study and like actually yeah i do want your bible study to be organic i want it to be focused i want it to be pure i want it to be hard work i want you to invest yourself in this process because there is nothing really more that we could invest ourselves in that could bear more fruit in our lives than the word of god and so um thank you so much laney for taking time to just uh I think kind of whet our appetites for um, for this contextual journey and how it can make um, the Bible make so much more sense. Like I said in our first episode, it was a real um, life. It was a life changing, and I don't think that's a bit of an exaggeration. It was a life changing moment for me to step into the courses that you taught on New Testament survey and Old Testament survey, for me to begin to get a glimpse of that meta narrative the big story that god is telling through human history that he is you know for the honor and glory of his name he is you know in the covenantal journey and just to begin to see the big picture made everything change and made the word of god come to life like i didn't know it could and so um i'm so uh so passionate to see other people get a hold of that truth and begin to get a hunger growing in their heart. And so, um, again, thank you, Lanny, for taking time. Uh, looking forward to the next couple times we can get together and continue to dig into some good stuff. Um, with that, uh, listening audience, thank you so much for being a part of, of our show today. Hope that it is beneficial. There's a lot of resources in the show notes today. I encourage you to go take a look at those show notes. Um, they are going to help you out a lot. And so until then, uh, if you have any questions, comments, or snide remarks, feel free to hit me up at rickm.manahouse.church. I would love to engage with you um, to hear what's, uh, what's benefiting you through this. And if you have any ideas for topics of future episodes, we'd love to make sure that we're hitting the sweet spot with uh, topics that help you 
uh, and to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And with that, we just say a tremendous God bless you and may you have the most amazing day.